Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, the forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. In this episode, we meet Swami Medhananda, an ordained monk in the order of Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. He is also an extremely well-respected scholar, working in the fields of cross-cultural philosophy and religious studies. Medhananda shares about his background as a cultural Indian born in the USA, and the journey which led him to become a monk and live in India for over a decade. We discuss his approach to the scholar-practitioner model of academic research and the challenges of bringing together spiritual commitment with academic rigor. The conversation then focuses on material from Medhananda's book, Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality, Sri Ramakrishna and Cross-Cultural Philosophy of Religion, which argues for a rigorous religious and salvific pluralism, which can avoid the pitfalls of relativism, as long as it's based on a doctrinal inclusivism. The conversation turns to explore the lineage of Vigyana Vedanta, based upon Sri Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, and Sri Aurobindo's engagement with an integral theology in which the divine is personal and impersonal, transcendent and imminent. We discuss the implications of such a paradoxical approach to the divine and its importance in cultivating pluralism in our contemporary times. Okay, welcome to another edition of the East-West Psychology Podcast. Um, I'm very uh, happy to be here with um, somebody who I've been looking forward to meeting uh, for a long time. I've always been inspired by his work, Swami Medananda. Um, welcome to the show, uh, Swami Ji. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Stephen. Nice, Swami. Welcome. And maybe to uh, give our listeners a little bit of background, maybe I will just read a, a little paragraph about uh, about your uh, your work, Swami Ji. Um, so. You are a monk of the Ramakrishna order and a senior research fellow in philosophy at the Vedanta Society in Southern California in Hollywood. Um, Swamiji also serves as Hindu religious director at the University of Southern California and as section editor for the International Journal of Hindu Studies, overseeing submissions in Hindu and cross-cultural philosophy of religion. From 2010 to 2021, he was associate professor and head of the program in philosophy at the Ramakrishna Mission in Vivekananda Education and Research Institute in Belarmat, West Bengal. His current research focuses on global philosophy of religion, cosmopolitan approaches to consciousness, Indian scriptural hermeneutics, and Vedantic philosophical traditions, especially the philosophies of Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, and Sri Aurobindo. You have... Um, a couple of books I'll mention, uh, Vedantic Cosmopolitanism, which is, is that out yet? 
Yes, Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitan, oh. published by Oxford University Press 2022. Sorry. Indeed. And and that's been released. Great. Well, I haven't got that one yet, but I will. Um, Infinite Past to Infinite Reality, Sri Ramakrishna and Cross-Cultural Philosophy of Religion, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. And I think we're going to be uh, talking about some of the ideas uh, you present in that book. And um, and the Dialectics of Aesthetic Agency, Revaluating German Aesthetics from Kant to Adorno, which is 2013 in, from Bloomsbury which seems to be breaking the the natural uh, theme of your, your more recent work. So maybe just starting, um, I would love to know a little bit about your background and how you came from, you know, German or Western, I guess, analytic philosophy into Eastern thought. Um, and maybe just give us a little bit more about your your life and, and, and where you're at now. Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Boston, uh, grew up mainly in Lexington, Massachusetts, and um, roughly starting in high school, I started sort of asking what might be called big questions or spiritual questions, but I didn't have clear answers to these questions. Where's my life going? What's the meaning of life? These kinds of questions. And <clears throat> I was raised culturally Hindu, we can say. You know, my, I'm uh, in a Bengali family, so my parents raised me Hindu, but in this kind of I'll call it cultural rather than spiritual sense, they would take me to pujas and stuff, but wouldn't explain what the significance of all of it was. So I kind of grew up, and I always had a kind of philosophical bent, so I kind of grew up as an agnostic, more or less. And that continued in my undergrad days. I did my bachelor's degree at Berkeley, um, and I studied English literature, and I did a minor in philosophy as well. And actually, during my undergrad, my real interest was in continental philosophy, even in grad school, my interests were mainly, but, but I studied both continental and analytic philosophy, both at Berkeley and at Oxford University. I spent a year at Oxford during my undergraduate as well. Um, and at the same time, I was kind of continuing my sort of my more personal spiritual inquiry um, by studying the world's religious scriptures, Bible and Quran and Dhammapada, Bhagavad Gita, and debating and discussing with friends, some of whom were, you know, some were Christian, some were atheist or agnostic, and just kind of trying to figure things out. And when I read the Gita, as I said, I was agnostic, so I, the, the stuff on bhakti, which is really the keynote of the Gita, I realize now, didn't interest me much. But um, I loved, something really deeply resonated with me when I read about attaining some kind of transcendental peace through renunciation of worldly ambitions and pleasures. So I had this kind of monastic impulse. Um, and But I was continuing my philosophical... I, I really felt that both my, my study of art and especially uh, modernist poetry, so one of my favorite poets is T.S. Eliot and also Wallace Stevens. Um, that was part of my spiritual search, actually. And then the study of philosophy, and especially German philosophy, continental philosophy, was also part of my spiritual search. So I didn't see my academic... Um, work as kind of different or running in parallel from my spiritual search, but actually part of my spiritual, you can say, quest or inquiry. Um, and then I um, joined the PhD program at Berkeley. It's, it was in an English department, so technically English, but English is very broad. Um, and I decided to do my doctoral work on German continental aesthetics. Um, and ironically, I wouldn't have been able to do that kind of continental project in a philosophy department, in most philosophy departments. And I think you guys know this. I mean, especially coming, I mean, you're at a, a kind of 
maybe lesser known institute where this kind of stuff is encouraged. But if you go to the kind of the so-called top 10 or top 20 um, ranked philosophy programs, they're all dominated by analytic philosophy. So I find myself in a really great position where I was able to study um, German continental aesthetics. I spent a year as a Fulbright scholar in Berlin at Humboldt University studying Hegel and Schopenhauer and Kant and Heidegger. Um, and so I wrote my doctoral thesis on German aesthetics from Kant to Adorno, really Kant to Hegel. And then I turned it into a book one year later, adding a chapter on Adorno. Um, and again, that was also part of my spiritual quest. I mean, the epigraph to my first book is from Adorno's aesthetic theory. And the epigraph is art leads beyond and yet not beyond. And that was, all, that was something I was, I was grappling with for years, which is because I couldn't stomach religion and God at the time, I was agnostic, art more or less took the place of spirituality and religion for me. And so, but I, I was, so my whole kind of uh, graduate career was kind of thinking through the powers and limits of art and how far it can take me and whether it really can supplant spirituality or whether I have to sort of eventually go beyond art to something higher um and and i found that i i, I did have to and, and in fact um the last sentence of my well okay let me let me quote from so in the introduction to my first book the dialectics of aesthetic agency i have a sentence there which is art at its most sublime registers the pathos of the distance between who we are and who we might be and so that to me was what art could give me is that I can see how far I am from the spiritual ideal, but it can't actually take me to the ideal. And so then the, the next logical step in my life was to, after, just after getting my PhD, I decided I need to move to India and become a monk, a sannyasi. And I decided that within one semester of grad school, that wasn't something that, that suddenly occurred to me at the end of my graduate career, but at the very beginning. Within one semester of grad school in 2003, I remember telling my friends and my professors actually, I'm gonna finish my PhD, work really hard, but after I get my PhD, I'm gonna get a one-way ticket to India, move to India and become a sannyasi and devote my life, my life to spiritual pursuits. And nobody believed me because I was very academically motivated and serious, but that's what I did. And um, then I moved to India and I did a six month pilgrimage throughout India before joining any kind of order. Um, and I stayed in many different ashramas. I stayed in the Divine Life Society for three weeks in Rishikesh, in the Himalayas. I went to all, uh, South India. I visited Tringiri Mata, the one, one of the great, uh, you know, Matas founded by Shankaracharya and met the Jagadguru there. I went to Pondicherry and went to Aurobindo Ashrama. So all these different things and um, met a lot of interesting people, monks, spiritual aspirants. And then finally joined at Ramakrishna Mission Vivekananda University in Bilumat, which is the global headquarters of our order, the Ramakrishna order. Um, and I thought to myself, what's the best way for me to integrate my academic work into my spiritual life? And so I, I just decided I would um, shift away from a focus on German philosophy and, and focus on Vedanta, Vedantic traditions, my own spiritual tradition, especially, and more generally, what's now become called global philosophy of religion. That's become a kind of hot topic just in the past five to 10 years. And so I'm, I'm uh, yeah, um, doing a lot of work in that area now. It's been very exciting. And so I really see all of my academic work as kind of continuous with my, with my spiritual life. And one other thing I'd mention is just um, during my, uh, during graduate school at Berkeley, in the last two years, I knew that I was going to move to India. And so I, I learned Sanskrit for four semesters. So I had a kind of foundation for going on to study Indian philosophy. Yeah.
Thanks for that background. Um, I yeah, that's uh, I can I can definitely relate to to you in in many ways in terms of feeling like um, as I'm a musician and so I came out of music school, became a professional musician. But there was there was uh, the question of the spiritual, and it was it was kind of awakened through kind of certain kinds of mystical experiences that or something transpersonal experiences that music invoked. Um, and it brought me to India. And so um, Bellarmat, I know very well, I lived in Calcutta as well for 10 years learning classical Indian music. And so this this uh, part of the world uh, is very dear to me and and important in my life as well. And I do remember uh, sitting on the 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 banks of the Hooghly, uh, reading the Katamrita and mm. <laughs> and um, and really trying to make make that connection um, between music or art and spiritual spirituality. You know, mm. so I think that those are some of the questions. I guess I'll bring up maybe in a in a little bit, but I'll I'll, I'll give it over to Stefan for a second. Thank you, Jonathan. I was just reminded as I was listening to you, Swamiji, that you're you shared so much in such a short amount of time. A little bit like reading your book, every page just raised so many questions and and so many um, paths that you know I was able to to go down. And I also wanted to th thank you because uh, as a result of this, of having you on the podcast. I finally got around to reading the Gospel of uh, Sri Ramakrishna, and I'm only about a quarter of the way through it. It's huge, but mm. it's an amazing text, really yeah. amazing text. I think it's really unique in the world spiritual literature. I mean, I, I can't think of anything else that's, that's quite like it. I mean, it's because it's not just his spiritual teachings, but it's it's a it's a it's a it's a meticulous diary, recording everything he did and said on a day to day basis for several years, I and mean, it's just really remarkable. Yeah. There is a the the the, uh, the collection um, that's known as the Mother's Agenda that was uh, the uh, recorded conversations between the mother and one of her uh, disciples, Supreme. Um, but this is uh, it's a, it's different in in a number of ways. But I for me the major difference as I'm thinking about it now is that that M was recording conversations that were taking place within a larger community of people yeah that's right so it's yeah. extraordinarily rich mm. so thank you for that um i'm i don't I even know where to go with this i i was thinking that uh as as jonathan had shared uh, i i would guess i would say that i had a similar uh experience to yours except that i my when i was 18 years when i was 18 years old i actually was in my brother's room listening to a Talking Heads album, Remain in Light, which I always thought was like perfect symbolically for the, that moment. And I actually heard a voice and the voice asked me to, to be quiet and that it had a question that it needed, that it wanted to ask me. And it said to me, you, you have a choice to make, you know, um, that you can either take the easy, easy path for life through life or the more difficult path through life so i said okay you know what how did how does that what are the choices and it said well you're you're fairly well uh suited to be uh um a monk and i had i thought when i was a teenager that i also might have a vocation and it would mean putting yourself in the service of a, a school maybe a teacher under a teacher that your life would be regimented that you would 
you know, wake up at a certain time, that you would go to sleep at a certain time, that you would say prayers or sit meditation at a certain time, you would eat at a certain time. And I said, and what's the other path? And they said, oh, that one, that's the difficult one. That's the path that takes you through life. And I, I don't know why I was 18 years old and I thought I, maybe there's more merit to taking the difficult path through life. I've, I've regretted it many times over the course of my life because I'm still really drawn to the inner life, but I live my life with one foot in both worlds. And it, I actually uh, came to uh, California to a, a Zen monastery thinking that I would stay in that monastery for six months and then I was going to travel to India or a year and then travel to India. And I couldn't stay. I just couldn't, the, I just didn't feel like it was home to me. And I traveled up the coast to, to this school and then met with a professor here that I knew from New York and wound up staying here. Uh, and it was here that I met my partner who is Indian. And it was she who finally brought me to India. And also the, she asked me what I wanted to do when the first time we went. And I said, I just wanted to go to the holy places and meet with, uh, you know, holy people. And so I spent six months on a pilgrimage in India, very similar to yours. Uh, but my connection is through her family and her family is not, I mean, they're pretty extraordinary people. Uh, they've met with many, many wise people throughout their lives. And my experience with them is a teaching, an ongoing teaching. And yet they live a, a secular Indian life. So I'm just, there's so much more, but I'm just finding this really interesting connection. I'm also thinking that in our school, we have this ideal in our program of the scholar practitioner. And Jonathan was telling me that he was listening to a talk of yours from you uh, of yours last night, and you were talking about how your sadhana is the academic work that you've undertaken. And it seems this is really the ideal here and where you draw that line, whether as like Sri Ramakrishna said, a, a little bit of study and a lot of depth work, right? Uh, or how, where is the balance uh, for you? So I'm sorry, I've gone on a, a long time, but uh, what you said kind of inspired me. Made me no, thanks. It's very fascinating. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Lots of parallels among the three of us, I guess. <laughs> So this this idea of the scholar practitioner, how do, how has that kind of worked out in your life and uh, the work I, you were teaching when you were at Balurmat, right? Are you still? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I recently moved to India. I mean, sorry, back to the U.S. And I'm in Hollywood now. I, I just moved about three and a half months ago. Um, but I'm still an academic, uh, and I'm Hindu chaplain at UCLA and USC, and I teach classes on the Bhagavad Gita at USC, for instance, um, and I'm continuing academic work and I still go to academic conferences and give lectures and stuff. Um, but yeah, no longer affiliated with uh, a university as an, as a, as an academic. Um, and so, yeah, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've always considered myself a scholar practitioner and that, that's really what I would, I, I told you that within one semester of grad school, I, I decided for myself, I don't want to just be an academic. And part of the reason was because I was looking at the lives of some of the most brilliant minds. And I just was not impressed. <laughs> this, is not, this is not how I want to end up. I don't care if I'm the most famous academic in the world, the most brilliant person with a Nobel Prize, but that's not a good life. Um, and so I just, I, I wanted to align my life with, try, try to align my life with my academic inquiry and Something Sri Ramakrishna uh, used to say, I, I think, re relevant. He said that pundits 
you know, great scholars. They, they're like vultures which soar very high in the sky, but ha have their sights set on the carrion below, beneath, you know? And I, I, I think that's uh, what I was trying to avoid, you know? So it was by becoming a monk that um, I felt that I could sort of, Vivekananda would say, clear the deck for battle, you know, just, just remove distractions and temptations to a certain extent so that you can really focus on spiritual life and really try, try to, I mean, the challenge in academic work is to take the ego out of the academic work, right? Um, if you if you still do it in an egoistic manner, whether you're wearing Gedua as a monk or whether you're a householder, you're still, that's not spiritual practice. So tr try to do it in an unselfish way, do it as worship of God, of the divine. Um, so that's that's the challenge I would say, and that's what I've been trying to do in my own life. I was going to ask you um, in in one of the the your talks online that you were doing maybe at Princeton, but you were saying the importance. You're talking about the importance of Hare Ramakrishna, for instance. That that there was an experience, and then there was kind of ideas or the speculation. It was sort of experience was was foundational to to this idea of of I guess teaching or or transmitting or um, or whatnot. And, you know, I think that's been really in, important to me, like I shared earlier, it was really, it's really musical experience that is fueling my inquiry and trying to find a way in which experience can speak for itself in a way rather than be spoken about by either words or concepts that, that aren't generated from it itself. And so in terms of spiritual experience, you know, um, it's sort of like language at the service of this experience. And I guess my question would be, um, if you could share a little bit about your your work in hermeneutics, because the first thing that I read of yours was uh, when you're developing the idea of mystical imminent hermeneutics. And I thought that was it was really uh, fascinating, inspiring, but also liberating as a scholar practitioner to kind of kind of uh, really allow myself to have feet as an insider, like a foot as an insider, a foot as an outsider, and really finding a methodology that's, I mean, in the in the classical image of thought or of, of scholarship, that's a lot harder or impossible in some cases to establish. And so in terms of, um, you know, thinking about even we mentioned the Katamrita as a, a very unique document, because it's not just about it's not documenting concepts or ideas. It's 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 a situated in a life. It has a very thick uh, and vivid and like kind of a thick description of what was happening all all around, um, and the different voices in the conversation and the different ways of speaking uh, to different uh, audiences. For instance, um, there, there's a, there, well, well, there's a lot in what you just said. I just want to pick up on one one thread, which is linked back to something Stefan was asking about the scholar practitioner, because. One thing I've found, because I've interacted now with a number of scholar practitioners, I've, I've, I've been to institutes and given lectures at places which sort of are trying to kind of cultivate a new generation of scholar practitioners. And I've also met sort of a lot of hardcore scholars who don't consider themselves practitioners at all. And I do find that if, if, you, if, if we talk about what are the challenges facing scholar practitioners, I think one of the biggest ones is striking that balance that you're talking about between um academic rigor on the one hand and a real uh, kind of spiritual commitment on the other and i think that what i often find is that some scholar practitioners are too foofy on the spiritual side without enough academic rigor and on the other side you get these hard-nosed academics who poo-poo spirituality and 
there's nothing wrong with that, but that I'm trying to hit that sweet spot in between. And I don't know to what extent I've succeeded, but but I, I do find that the danger is for scholar practitioners is on the other side is kind of ending up in poopy land. I think that, yeah, this is a, a, a difficult um, kind of line to, to tread. Uh, and I think that there's, we have, we find that in our school as well, in our program, that students struggle with this. And, and what I'd, another thing I'd add, sorry for interrupting you, but one thing I wanted to add is that I think one of the dangers among some scholar practitioners is to kind of silo themselves and to say like, mainstream academics don't know what they're talking about. They're not spiritual, like this kind of dismissive, knee-jerk dismissive attitude toward them. And what they end up doing is they end up publishing in these kind of niche journals or with random publishers that aren't widely accepted by mainstream academics. And then they're not actually engaged in that international co mainstream conversation with other scholars. And I think that's a problem. So what I've, I mean, I, you can tell from the, the kind of places I've published in, but I'm really trying to directly dialogue with mainstream scholars, but speaking in, in a language that they'll understand and to try to convince them. But so now please, uh, I want to come back to what Stefan, what yeah, I'm, well, I'm curious about the challenges uh you know because you uh, because it's obvious who you are and and your positionality and do you find that you're challenged right there or are you more accepted what's your what's your experience i get both i mean i you know um i'll, I'll give you one example with my latest book swami vikram's vedanta cosmopolitanism of course oxford university press is they have a rigorous peer review process so they sent it so they sent my at different stages they sent my proposal and then my full manuscript to peer reviewers and it was anonymous um but with book reviews usually what happens is a single blind peer review and so the the reviewers knew who i was but i didn't know who they were and at least one of the reviewers kind of assumed the worst because i was a monk of the ramakrishna order they kind of assumed that i would be biased how can he write objectively and and, and critically about the founder of his monastic order, Vivekananda. Um, and Oxford allowed me to write a response back. And so I did. I said, the proof is in the pudding. So please judge me on the merits of uh, and the demerits of what I've actually written and produced rather than, you know, assuming, making presumptions based on who I am. So though, that's one of the challenges I have faced on occasion is that, you know, when I go to conferences wearing this and openly admitting that I'm or just saying, not even admitting, that sounds weird, but like just saying, I'm a monk of the Ramakrishna order. Some people have certain stereotypes or presuppositions or biases just on, just based on that information. Um, and I find myself having to sometimes dig myself out of a hole, which I think is unfair and ungenerous, but that's something I've had to deal with. Um, at, I've found that nu on numerous occasions, but uh, I, that's something I've also accepted. And I don't lament the fact, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a fact I deal with. And, I think the more the more rigorous I can be in my work, the less I'm going to get that kind of response. And and I do find myself participating in mainstream academic conversations because my work has been accepted by uh, you know major publishers, and um, I'm invited invited regularly to kind of global conferences with a lot of mainstream scholars. Not just like one of the things I try to avoid is just kind of siloing myself in, in a group of scholar practitioners because I don't I don't find that to be very healthy. And I do think that sometimes the, the, the I would say that I would encourage scholar practitioners to publish in more mainstream venues because I, I think that's not done actually in a lot of cases. Yeah, this is this is fascinating and I think really, really helpful to the kind of milieu that we are in in CIAS here because trying to, to thread that fine needle. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what's coming up for me is maybe that that differentiation between 
the you know you're saying like sometimes the on the spiritual side it's it's left it's not enough rigor it's it's a little bit too woo woo or or foo foo or whatever word is, yeah. is coming yeah. coming there um but you know this brings up i think it brings up that idea of um of intuitive knowledge in a way and how does how can we find a way to express and how can intuition fit into the academy um and what i found is that i you know studying from sri Aurobindo, you know the different gradations of being the intuitive mind the illumined mind and so i always saw um intuition as being something that is is being kind of an an opening of the mind to something beyond that that has a, a more uh, embracing and more comprehensive view um in the west here as I, I came back to the west i realized a lot of people say when you say intuition they're like well that's just that feeling that you the gut feeling that's just gonna it's just anything goes you know intuition so um i mean you you brought up in one of uh, your talks as well that idea of um kind of like this is the super rational you know the super mental in sri Aurobindo's language but um, you, you're dealing with this idea a lot. You mentioned Sri Aurobindo's The Logic of the Infinite, for instance. Uh, in your book, um, you get into speaking about pair consistency. And so you're sort of addressing this way in which we can start to kind of, um, I guess, in scholarship, use um, super rational ways of, of coming to, uh, to conclusions and, and, and whatnot. I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about that and how that comes into your work. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say is that, I mean, if you ask who is a model kind of scholar practitioner? Sri Aurobindo, I think, is I mean, it's, he's 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 really singular because of his background, because he was educated in England, Cambridge University, brilliant student, and a yogi and a realized soul, an illumined being. And then he writes these books, and this is what I've tried to show in my scholarly articles on Sri Aurobindo's hermeneutics, his interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, of Isha Upanishad. He's, I, I think he's, he's a model of somebody who can really um, find that balance between scholarly rigor, academic rigor, and um, a, a real spiritual foundation and core. He does it so well. It, look at the language. You know, um, it's, it's, that's why a lot of people, I mean, what, what's funny is in India, I, most people just can't read him. I mean, they, they can't understand what he's saying because the English is too high-pitched. Uh, the sentences are too long and the grammar is too complex. And, and, and uh, so that's the academic side of him, you know, and there's, there's, it's clause piled on another clause, you know, it's very Germanic in a certain sense, a British Victorian, whatever you want to say. Um, I love it though. It's an acquired taste, but I love it. And I've acquired that taste. And there's so much rigor behind, you know, and he's always thinking about the skeptic. He always has the skeptic in mind. So you're thinking about, well, you know, what if the skeptic, he has in mind the skeptic who's like, says, well, why should I accept your spiritual experiences? And then he gives his answer. And so Stephen Phillips, for instance, is another scholar who's done good work on Sri Aurobindo. And so he, he came up with this idea of what's called what he calls mystic empiricism. And I think that's really unique in Sri Aurobindo is that he's, he's trying to develop a mystic empiricism, defending what nowadays falls in philosophy of religion and philosophy of mind, um, um, the epistemic value of spiritual experience, you know, uh, trying to defend on philosophical grounds spiritual experience as a form of knowledge. And uh, that's one of the main areas of my work. So I've devoted several chapters to my last two books um, to this issue of how do we defend rigorously the epistemic value of spiritual experiences and not just kind of dogmatically assert. I've had this intuition. And so you scholars who have not had that intuition, shut up and listen, and they're just going to dismiss you, right? You have to talk in their language. 
and not lecture at them, right? So that, that that's the tricky thing. One of the one of the things that I really appreciated about your book was not not just the rigor, but the struck the earth's kind of structural thinking, the way that you structured your argument and uh, kept kind of circling back. You would lay out arguments against you would and then you would refute right. them or you would uphold them. And there was a very deliberate way in which you were kind of going through this material. And I think with Sri Aurobindo, one of the things that I had to learn with him is you can open up any one of his books and pull a quote out and use that quote to substantiate an argument that you might have. But if you look really carefully at, you know, the five pages before and the five pages after, you you, you can you might see that that argument is actually in a chain of arguments oh, yeah. where he is eventually going to refute it. And he, so he thinks in a, in a very kind of philosophical way, it's a dialogical way that he's- In really a very analytical of... way. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I, I would add is that I'm very grateful that I was trained in both analytic philosophy and continental philosophy, because I think both approaches have their strengths and weaknesses. So on the continental side, and this is why my first love was continental philosophy, because they ask, they dare to ask the big questions and they give big answers, ambitious answers that may fall flat or may not be, but, but, but they're trying, they're tackling the big questions about life, about God and um, but they may not be as quote unquote rigorous in a certain sense. And analytic, what I learned from analytic philosophy are is is a certain way of developing arguments, developing rigorous arguments. Um, but the danger is they end up kind of hair splitting and kind of focusing on like micro level stuff, and then they lose sight of the kind of the bigger questions. And so I'm really trying to take the best of both approaches, which is the kind of the rigor, the analytic rigor of analytic philosophy. But the kind of big picture approach of continental philosophy, and then trying to integrate that into my work on Vedanta and on spiritual philosophies like Sri Aurobindo's and Ramakrishna's and Vivekananda's. One of the questions that comes up for me is, you know, you you talked about poetry, your love of poetry, and you mentioned Wallace Stevens and T. S. Eliot, and who are both, I guess you could say, they're metaphysical poets. I, I mean, in a way, I, I've, I'm maybe maybe there's an argument there, but I um, I'm curious about the place for devotional devotional thinking or or a more kind of a feeling sense within academic work, within scholarly work. When I was writing my dissertation, because I, I'm much more of a feeling kind of centered person, and I, I struggle a little bit more with kind of the analytical side of things, that I really wanted that devotional element to be there in this work. And my, my chair was really had to warn me uh, about it, and I really tried to strike a balance. So I'm just wondering: is there a, is there a place for that? Can work still be rigorous if there's a devotional element to it? I, you know, I re like maybe the difference between Sri Aurobindo's more academic writing and Savitri, which is kind of exists in its own space. Yeah, but I mean, it is. I mean, that's significant that you're pointing to a text that's in a completely different genre, right? I mean, that's poetry rather than philosophy. Not that it's not philosophical, but. Um, I think it also depends on the discipline that you're, you're asking about. And so I think that the, the, the disciplinary expectations and standards of the academic field of religious studies is quite different from those of academic philosophy departments. And one of the reasons why I have squarely aligned myself with academic philosophy rather than with religious studies, because I find the disciplinary expectations um, and standards in religious studies be much more problematic for the kind of work I'm doing than for than than philosophy. Let me just say clearly. I mean, simply, in philosophy, what philosophers tend to care about are the arguments and how good they are. And in religious studies, it seems to be everything but arguments. They start with this kind of 
let me be honest about my positioning, my positionality. And, and it's, I just, I, I kind of like roll, start rolling my eyes when I start talking about LGBTQ and this and that and a million things, except for the arguments. And it's not, I'm nothing against LGBTQ, but, but it, it, it's, that's become the, the focus now. It's who are you? Who am I as a scholar? What's my situatedness and this and that? And they never get on to kind of the, the arguments. Um, and so my saving grace is that I, I feel that, that I'm, an, I'm an academic philosopher. And at the end of the day, they don't ask, who are you? They ask, how good are your, what are your arguments and how good are they? And that saved me. Um, I just, and, and so it's not that I don't do work in religious studies, but it's just it's secondary or tertiary. Which, um, and there, there are conscious reasons that I'm not uh, fully in religious studies. It's because I get a little frustrated with the kind of work I find there. It's it's more fashion driven too. That's another thing. I another beef I have with religious studies. It's you know, uh, twenty years ago it was psychoanalysis. You know, and Kripal wrote a book on Kali's Child and analyzing Sri Ramakrishna from a psychoanalytic perspective and this and that, and that won this AAR award. And now it's something else, and it's it's very trend driven. Not that philosophy isn't, um, but still, at the end of the day, the core of academic philosophy is about evaluating arguments, and and I, I like that. I was wondering if we can get to one of the something that maybe you could uh, bring some clarity to uh, and 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 argue for, which is what your you know your book Infinite Past, Infinite Reality is about, but religious pluralism and something at the school, you know, CIS has been involved in these conversations for a long time. And you know that that idea of perennialism and and pluralism and what are ways in which we can we can kind of understand uh, a, like a rigorous pluralism in a way. Um, something that is going to avoid a, a relativistic or a nihilistic, um, you know, terrain in a way. Um, and I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and and the metaphysics that kind of grounds the kind of pluralism um, that you are dealing with right now, whether it's com coming from Ramakrishna or Vivekananda or Sri Aurobindo. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I think that there. Are in my work on religious pluralism, especially with with regard to Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, what I'm trying to avoid are, on the one hand, the extreme of relativism, which you just mentioned, which is sort of anything, there's no objective truth, and so anything goes, and so everything is valid, equally valid. Um, so I'm trying to avoid that extreme. On the other hand, I'm trying to avoid something that I find very commonly, uh, not just in an Indian context, but um, throughout the world in global thinking about religious diversity is that this tendency toward what's technically called religious inclusivism, um, which is a position that privileges one religious or spiritual standpoint above all the others. But on the basis of that one standpoint, you can sort of give, give uh, a, a place to other worldviews, but it's not quite on the same footing as your own, as your own view. And I'm trying to avoid that as well. And to thread that needle is challenging. And the way that I've tried to do this is by distinguishing two ways of cashing out this threefold typology, this exclusivism, inclusivism, pluralism typology. One is in terms of salvation. The other is in terms of doctrine or truth. So what I mean is um, you can, okay, so with regard to salvation, salvific pluralism is the view that multiple religious or spiritual paths are equally capable of taking us to the highest form of salvation. And if you don't like the word salvation, call it whatever you want, enlightenment or God realization or realization of the divine. In order to ground a salvific pluralism, you have to be inclusivist in a different sense. This is the thing that I, it, it took me a couple of years to, to gain clarity about this, but I, I, um, this is what I'm sharing with you now. 
In order to ground a robust salvific pluralism, you have to accept a doctrinal inclusivism. What I mean is you have to come up with a kind of meta-philosophy that grounds salvific pluralism. And that meta-philosophy is going to contain other spiritual traditions or philosophies within it as kind of aspects. So to be more concrete and less abstract, um, I the way that I understand Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy is that's what I call Vigyana Vedanta. It's a philosophy based on his own spiritual experience of Vigyana. And I see the foundational tenet of his Vigyana Vedanta to be that the divine reality is equally personal and impersonal, equally with form and without form, and, and beyond even personality and impersonality and beyond form and formlessness. But that's a very strong claim. That's a claim that conflicts with many other claims in other philosophical traditions. And I see it as a more comprehensive claim about the nature of the divine reality than other religious traditions. Um, and so in that sense, there's a kind of inclusivistic dimension, even in Ramakrishna's thought, right? And, and I think pluralists just have to bite that bullet and say, yes, there is an inclusivist dimension, but along the doctrinal axis, because his philosophy is more comprehensive. It's more expansive than many of the other philosophies that, that are on offer. But, it, but it's inclusivistic, it's doctrinally inclusivist with the aim of grounding a salvific pluralism with the aim of establishing that multiple religious and spiritual paths can be equally capable of, of taking us to the highest spiritual goal. So does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I guess that that goes into this this question also, um, I guess, which I'm reading it anyway, going into that idea of Vedantic cosmopolitanism in a sense of like, having experiences in multiple religions, you were bringing that out in one of your, 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 your talks so that it wasn't as, as so that you would avoid um, an inclusivism that's a little bit more closed. You're going to, you're going to say, well, yes, I have a center here, but I am going to go away from my center. I will become an, uh, I will become an insider to something else. Yeah. But I guess I wouldn't put it in the form of, I'm going to go away from my center. You're still grounded in the center. You're kind of anchored there. But it's 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 with that strong anchor that you can feel free to kind of learn and immerse yourself in other religious traditions, learn as much as you can from them. But with that with with that anchoring, because without the anchoring, uh, the danger is spiritual dilettantism, and you're kind of you're, you become a spiritual dabbler or an eclectic, and you're like, well, I, I did this Hinduism for a few years, now let me dabble in Christianity. It's not that; it's a kind of you're you're firmly anchored, grounded in your own tradition. But it's on that basis that you can then freely draw on other traditions and learn from them and incorporate aspects of other traditions into your own. Sure, sure. And so a question I would have then is, is how to, in that practice, um, how would you then um, avoid too much projection or too much of a, uh, an interpretation from, from that center, you know? And I just wanted to bring up like that, like also in terms of your life, like you, you from North America, um, but you went to India to live. Like for me, you, you bring up the idea of epistemic conditions. Like it really took me leaving North America to, for me to even understand what that kind of felt like, you know, to challenge your own epistemic conditions. And so in my work, I felt like in order to know my own home better, I had to leave it. And so that meant me becoming an insider to, to Indian culture and tradition while I was sort of also becoming an outsider to my own. And so I'm trying to grapple with this. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, but the one thing I'd say is I don't think you 
fully stepped out of your Americanness when you moved to India because you, that's not possible. You can't step out of your own skin. You were acculturated here, and so so I think that's the same same went with me. It's like you know, when I left the U.S. for India and I stayed there for thirteen years, part of the reason was because I wanted to make a clean break and kind of start my spiritual life fresh. And but you know, there's no forgetting you know the twenty nine years, the twenty eight years that I spent in the U.S. And I don't nor nor do you have to forget. That's one of one of the lessons I learned when I was in India is that you have what's called samskaras, <laughs> what you've done in the past, and you can't just like you know get up and abandon them. And so I see it more as cumulative, right? And so everything you undergo, every tradition that you immerse yourself in, becomes a part of you, and you grow as a result. And I think the key here is kind of being mindful. And, and conscious and aware as you immerse yourself in different traditions. And, and, and you, you try to avoid making a hodgepodge of things. And one thing I wanted to mention in this regard is something Vivekananda says again and again is, no human being is born into a religion. Each person has a religion, a kind of individualized religion in the depths of his or her soul, right? So there's no one size fits all religion. What there is is you first have to do a lot of so literal soul searching, figure out, what makes you tick spiritually? And then, so that's what I mean by the anchor. It's really the anchor is not in any tradition so much as in your own soul, you know? Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. And then you can feel free to kind of draw on your uh, Hindu tradition, Christian tradition, Islamic Sufi tradition, this and that, a, a, as much as you want, freely. I've done that in my own spiritual practice. I've incorporated aspects of Buddhist mindfulness and Christian worship. And I love, for instance, sacred classical music. So. The, the Christian music of, of Bach and Buxtehuda and Arvo Perd is my favorite contemporary composer, the Estonian composer. Uh, that's an important part of my practice as well, you know. But I, I never feel like I'm drifting from my own tradition when I listen to Christian music or I do Buddhist mindfulness practice. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I, I like your framing of uh, kind of doc, doctrinal um, pluralism. Doctrinal, um, I'm sorry. Uh, Inclusivism. To ground salvific pluralism, yeah. To, right. Uh, I was, you know, I was raised a Unitarian. So, and although Unitarian, the church that I was raised in was almost secular in a way. There was, uh, and you know, in front of me uh, every Sunday when I would go into uh, the worship room, were these kind of um, symbols of all, all of these major religious faiths. And it was the the core of the teaching was that there is something in each of these. There's something of the truth, if you want to call it that, in each of these. And I cycled through many different faiths, starting with Taoism and then Buddhism, Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, and Christi Christianity, uh, esoteric Christianity, and eventually found my way uh, to integral yoga. And I, but I'm still I'm teaching courses on Western the Western magical traditions right now at our school. Uh, what I found in each of these, every time that I entered into uh, a faith stream, was that it was always me that was interfacing with it. But in each case, and this is one of the reasons that I really have come to appreciate Sri Ramakrishna, is that I felt that in each case, what was being asked of me was to surrender to a certain degree to the gestalt of the faith, all the people that were believing, the texts, the, the practices. And in each one of them, I felt that I was in encountering the the truth as I experience it within myself, uh, but I didn't necessarily feel compelled to be attached to any one of these any one of the traditions. I was raised in a strangely 
semi-secular. I mean, you know this because you were raised in a similar society. Um, and I'm still kind of continuing in that way. I do feel a loss at times because I haven't found one tradition to ground myself. Mm. Uh, That's interesting. I mean, do you find do you find that to be a problem, or are you happy with it? Uh, well, there, when it, when I'm happy with it, it feels right. <laughs> and when I'm struggling, then it feels like maybe it's a problem. Right. Okay. All right. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, in my case, I I grew up. As I said, culturally Hindu, so I put Hindu in brackets, and and I, I was I was always too much of a philosopher and a kind of critical thinker to just say, oh, because my parents raised me Hindu, therefore my my home tradition has to be Hinduism. I just found that unrigorous, and so I knew I was like, just because you're born into a religion, that doesn't mean that that's the one that you should accept. And so I was very very critical toward my own religion, but I found myself circling back to it. And now looking back in hindsight, I see that there's a kind of you know because of karma, right? And I can see why I was. In a Hindu tradition, um, but I, but you know, my parents were not devotees of, of the Ramakrishna Vivekananda tradition, so I came to it on my own through philosophical study and um, reading many other traditions, and then sort of find, wending my way to the tradition I find myself in. And so I, um, but I, I think that it's very valuable to have have a home tradition. Um, I think, like I see, like in the beginning phase, I think it's very important to expose yourself to multiple traditions and not be kind of dogmatically or kind of um, prematurely committed to any one tradition, because that really does kind of short circuit your, you know, your openness to other paths. But at, at a certain stage, I think that it's, I, I think it's important for most people, I don't want to generalize, but for most people that kind of commit to a tradition, just to dig deep, Ramakrishna would say, if you want to dig for water and you start digging and after five minutes, you say, yeah, I'm bored. And you start moving like five feet away and you start digging and you're never going to make progress. So this real depth approach. And the thing about Sri Ramakrishna is, what, is that he wouldn't stop practicing one tradition until he attained the goal of that tradition because he was a spiritual genius. But how many of us can really boast that kind of genius? Yeah. 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 My devotional practice revolves around the mother. Right. Well, and that's a tradition. I mean, I, I see that as a tradition. I think that's the home tradition. I don't think you don't have. I, then I would say that you you really are anchored in the Aurobindo mother tradition. Right. But my practice is much more of a kind of a bhakti practice. Well, that's also part, very much a part of Aurobindo's mother's message, right? Surely. Right. Yeah. Surrender. Yeah. Surrender to the mother. I did have a question about. I saw a question about this. My and I'm you know I'm still new to Ramakrishna's thought and his presence but my experience of him there's there's always this idea that i've encountered where a teacher will speak to the to the level or the needs of the student but I, sometimes i get the sense as i'm listening to the i'm listening to an audio version audiobook version of the gospel of ramakrishna that he himself is cycling like he cycles through these states um like he'll go into a he'll he'll go into a deep samadhi and he'll come out and he speaks from the experience that he was just having. And I'm just wondering whether that whether I'm seeing it clearly or if you feel that as a as a teacher, he was acutely aware of the of each individual that he was speaking to. Well, I think both things can be true. I, I don't think the two uh, alternatives are mutually exclusive. And I think that he was he was very much aware of his interlocutors. And so, I mean, what you'll find if you read the entire gospel that's why I think it's such a valuable document because they're not just a compilation of his teachings, but you see the context. To whom is he speaking? So what happens is in some places, you'll find that a Vaishnava Goswami comes to him. What does Sri Ramakrishna do? 
he knows his background. You can see his heart. And so what he says is, your path, your path is wonderful. It's wonderful that you're cultivating bhakti for Krishna, but never say that, never limit God to just the form of Krishna. Always remember that Satchitan and the Krishna is also Satchitan and the Shiva, who is also Satchitan and the Brahma. Right? When an Advaita Vedantin comes to him, like Mohima Chakraborty, there are several others who come to him. He'll do the opposite. He'll say, it's wonderful. You, the path of jnana is great, but never forget that that same infinite divine also assumes forms and assumes forms for bhaktas of the personal God and never say that they're unreal. And so he's, he's very, very aware of whom he's speaking to. And at the same time, you're right, that he would often come down from these states of spiritual experience and talk about what he's experienced and from that. But I think that both both can be true. And I, uh, another thing that he says, which I, which I really love is, he says, if I have a seven-hole flute, I don't want to just play, put my finger on one hole, that, which he likens to, interestingly, to the Soham, I am that Brahman, the Pascal Advaita Vedanta. He says, that's boring. I want to play ragas and raginis on the flute and commune with God in many different ways. Sometimes I'll think of myself as a child, sometimes as servant, sometimes in the form of identity. And I want to think of God as Krishna sometimes. And as Kali, I mean, they're just, he's just such a child of God. And he just, he's, he's completely surrendered. So I think the, the only word I would slightly object to in, in what you're saying is this idea of cycling, because I think it, it implies too much agency or conscious, uh, like sort of that he's, he's, he's kind of, or maybe it's too mechanical, but it's not cycling. It's just, he's completely surrendered to the divine and, and letting the divine mother play through him. And, 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 and that's what allows him to just commune with God in so many different ways in this, in this, he, another way he puts it is that he says that I want to dance with two hands up. You know, I'm not afraid of anything. I accept everything. Yeah. I think that maybe where I was coming from with that is this idea of, um, or experience of the spirit as kind of a wind as a, as, as a breath that passes through all things. And I, I'm, I'm this, I get the sense as I'm listening that, the it's the, the way the wind is blowing it's i, I can't put it in i i'm finding difficulty to find words for it but it, the inspiration that's passing through him the way the spirit manifests at any moment in him can take many many different forms that's one of the things that i i i see his genius for that but it's not that it's a pure openness to this and i you know i can say in a small way in my own life you know, I have moods that pass through me or thoughts that pass through me or different qualities, different rasas that, that pass through at a moment that don't seem to be necessarily attached to, they're not coming from me. I'm not the one that's generating them. And I get the sense that there's a, that he's so open, he's so free that the expression or the experience of this quality changes. So I'm, it's almost like being just simply in the presence of that intelligence or or yeah, I, can't, I can't find a word for it that's just no, coming that's through right. him I mean, yeah it's just he's an empty receptacle and, and it's just because he has no ego left in him and so he's just a child of divine mother and he speaks as she makes him speak that's what he would always say because these pundits would come who have studied all the scriptures and he's you know he, he, he can't even well he can read a little bit but very little and, and they wonder where does all this wisdom come from and he says I just I'm just telling you what divine mother tells me to say yeah it's beautiful yeah yeah absolutely and i do love that uh 
that way of thinking about the jnani and the vigyani as the the one that plays the raginis and mm. and it's it's kind of is is dancing is playing with uh, mm. with the, the divine shakti that's that's really beautiful as a as an instrumentalist i can really relate to that because yeah i thought having you all of these frets and then being stuck to one note would be really that's right that's opposite. right monotonous literally yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you if we could now get into um, speaking a little bit more about specifically about Vigyana. And if you could, um, I mean, share uh, like what that what that means, maybe for some of our listeners who may not have the background and also um, differentiate for us, like how you see that um, from Ramakrishna, Vivekananda and, and Sri Aurobindo. I'm really curious because there's obviously a continuity here. And I'm I'm curious on your deep reading of, of all of these sources, how what what is it about vigyana that's is continuous and how how does it, it maybe subtly change from from person uh, you know uh, yogi to yogi mystic to mystic experience <laughs> they're they're a different sure experience. yeah no this is a wonderful question i mean probably that would take up another podcast episode i imagine but i can start i can make a, a start at it so um Shuram krishna often distinguished between two stages in spiritual experience which he called jnana and vigyana and he would use the metaphor of a staircase and a roof so he would say that in order to reach the roof, uh, a jnana yogi, so somebody who's practicing the yoga, the path of knowledge, according to classical Advaita Vedanta, practices neti neti, not this, not this. He says, Brahman is not this, Brahman is not that. And he leaves the steps behind one by one until he reaches the roof. Reaching the roof for Ramakrishna signifies nirvikalpa samadhi, the state in which you recognize, you realize spiritually your true essence as non-dual pure consciousness. And he likens that to a salt doll going to measure the depths of the ocean. But the moment it set foot in the ocean, it melts into the ocean, right? Then he says, most people, ordinary souls, he called them jivakotis, leave their body in the state of nivikalpa samadhi within 21 days because they're not taking food <laughs> and they can't get out of the state if it's the highest state. But he says, there's a, there's a, an, a, a spiritual elite, a category called ishvarakoti. And he defines ishvarakotis very precisely as avatars and and in Bangla, avatarit angsho, which means portions, literally portions of an avatara. So those who accompany or those who are somehow one with the divine incarnation, they alone are Ishwarakotis. They can come back from this state of Nivikalpa Samadhi. And he says, those, that, those are Vigyanis. And those Vigyanis see that the steps are made of the same materials as the roof, bricks, lime, and brick dust. So that's an analogy. And then he says, so the Vigyani alone recognizes. So whereas the Jnani, the one who has reached the roof in the state of Nivikalpa Samadhi, feels very deeply, Brahma Satyam Jagad Mitya, non-dual pure consciousness alone is real. I am that pure consciousness. Everything else is unreal. This world is unreal. I don't even perceive this world. The Vigyani, by contrast, comes back and says, wait a minute, but this entire world is a real manifestation of God. Because now I've realized that God is not only Nirguna, which is what the Jnani realizes, it's impersonal without attributes, it's pure consciousness, but it's equally Saguna, it's Shakti, it's the personal God, and it's Shakti that manifests in infinite ways in this world. It plays, playfully manifests as everything in this world. And so Ramakrishna is obviously speaking on the basis of his own spiritual experiences. He once he was talking about when he was doing puja one day, worship, ritualistic worship. And he says, suddenly I had this experience that everything was divine consciousness. The puja vessels were divine consciousness. The door sill was, was divine consciousness. A cat walked into the room while he was doing puja. I saw the cat as nothing but divine consciousness. I started worshiping the cat. Okay, that's Ramakrishna. Vivekananda is very interesting because you, you get the sense when you read his, his complete works that he's a kind of hardcore Shankarite sometimes. Some people might feel that way. I certainly did when I first read him. 
but at that time I loved classical Advaita, but I moved away from it kind of later um, in my spiritual life. Um, but what you'll find is starting in 1896, especially the keynote of his Vedantic teachings becomes not just I am he, but all is he. And he has gives these beautiful lectures called like God in everything. And he says, for instance, in that lecture, Vedanta does not in reality denounce the world. It teaches the deification of the world. See everything as God. So that's, that's the key. That's Vigyan. What about Sri Aurobindo? Very striking to me. First of all, Ramakrishna had mystical communications with Sri Aurobindo on three occasions. Sri Aurobindo himself records in his diary these three incidents. And on one occasion, Sri Ramakrishna tells him, obviously, after decades after he left his, his physical body, Aurobindo Mundirkoro, Mundirkoro in Bengali. They're both Bengali, so they spoke in Bangla. Um, Sri Aurobindo, Make your start your own ashrama, start your own ashrama, you know, and these kind of, and some of them are very, very mystical, these communications. Vivekananda came to him every day for a fortnight in the Alipur jail when Sri Aurobindo was jailed for his uh, uh, political activities as a freedom fighter in Kolkata. And his first spiritual experience, as far as I'm aware, was when he was learning meditation from Vishnu Bhaskar Lele in Baroda. And he had an experience that I think corresponds to what Sri Ramakrishna called Jnana, because he, he later confirmed that this was the experience of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. I felt that I was non-dual Brahman and that everything else was a cinematographic play of vacant forms superimposed on the impersonal Brahman, on the impersonal Sadatma. And then just a year later, he was jailed in Alipur. Vivekananda came to him. He's studying the Gita. And he said, I started practicing the sadhana of the Bhagavad Gita. And then I realized everything was Vasudeva. The blankets that were the coarse blankets that were covering me was Vasudeva. The prisoners were Vasudeva. The prison guards were Vasudeva. The, the bars on my on my prison cell were also Vasudeva. That's Vigyana, right? And so anyway, so I, I do think that this is very deep spiritual continuity. Now, if you want to get into the details of kind of the differences and how Sri Aurobindo understands Vigyana, I, I really think that would take a separate podcast and we really have to have text in our hand to really go into that. But it's a very important question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And and you know what? Let's do that because that's interesting to me. And I know Debashish Banerjee, our chair, this he's also specialized in in this type of uh, these types of questions. But it'd be great to have him on the show with us to to discuss this. And because I think it really, really is uh is fundamental and it's important in our times, you know, um, to help address some of the some of the kind of epistemic closures that I'm I'm feeling anyway in our times. Mm -hmm. I have I have, uh, I have I have one question, uh, kind of along these lines, and this has been uh, the thing that I've been struggling with actually as I've been reading the texts. And if and and Sri and Sri Ramakrishna answers this question in a few places, and so, but I would love to hear your take on it. If it's a really simple question, if everything is God, if God is everything, manifests as everything, Sri Ramakrishna often says, avoid two things, right, gold and women. Uh, which uh, could be taken literally, but could also be a, a larger kind of figurative. It's lust and, uh, and greed. greed. You can say, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and yet, uh, in a in a more tantric way, and this may be a, kind of a pushing the interpretation of it. Uh, the the understanding that God is manifesting as everything would. Um, would it would it then still be necessary to avoid uh, certain things? You know, I think that there's somebody yeah. who is. I think there's a this passage in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna where uh, a monk comes to him and he's been known to be having an affair 
with a woman and she and he says there's no difference i'm not you know that this woman is god you know i'm god the body is god so i'm just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit uh about that and the necessity to be a little bit more discriminating yeah sure i mean i i think the the key here is that Sri Ramakrishna is is teaching the need to renounce lust and greed for sadhakas, spiritual aspirants who have not attained the highest realization that God is everything, right? And so I don't think he encourages people to sort of see God in everything and then indulge. Right. So uh, and, and in fact, the, the incident you're mentioning is not found in the gospel, but it's 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 mentioned in Lila Prashanga. The Bengali biography of Sri Ramakrishna, written by his direct disciple Swami Sharadananda, is translated as Sri Ramakrishna and his divine play. And what's significant about that is, so it was a, 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 a monk, a sannyasi from I think Punjab, who comes to visit Dukineshwar, sees Sri Ramakrishna, and he practices classical Advaita Vedanta. So it's actually kind of different. It's not the Vigyana kind of Advaita. He thinks this world is a dream. And Sri Ramakrishna approaches him and says, "Hey, what's this I hear that you're having an affair with a woman? You're supposed to be a sannyasi." observing vows of celibacy and 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 then he gives them this very clever classical advaitic reply which is oh let me explain to you the situation everything here is maya so how can my affair with this woman alone be real <laughs> let me the affair i'm having with the woman is unreal ramakrishna then says to him i piss on your vedanta in the original bengali which is watered down in the translation because it's a little bit too <laughs> harsh now what the interesting thing is priyadavindo brought up this incident because he was very well versed in the life and teachings of Sri, Sri Ramakrishna. So he talked about this specific incident in his letters. And what he says is what I like, I really like this. He says, he says the classical Advaitic Sadhu had a point. He had a point because from the logical philosophical standpoint of classical Advaita, it's a kind of anything goes. If you really believe that everything is a dream, then it really does flatten distinctions. And then and then you know you feel free to do whatever you want. But that's part of the reason why Shredovindo rejected classical Advaita Vedanta philosophically and went plump for this integral Advaita or whatever you want to call it, Purna Advaita. And I think Sri Ramakrishna would say exactly the same thing. So long as you have not realized God, yes, everything is God, but first of all, you haven't realized that. So don't pretend that you have. And secondly, he says, even the tiger is Narayana, but you don't go to embrace the tiger. You 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 worship and do pranams to the tiger from a distance. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. <laughs> I didn't realize that was in Sri Aurobindo's letters too, but that's that's yeah, really powerful. It's 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 really interesting. He has a very interesting remark about that. Yeah, 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 and it, it does it does bring up um you know like like you mentioned um, uh, Sri Aurobindo have being a very unique person, a cross cultural being in a way, and and also you know really addressing some of the i guess the problems of modernity directly head on um theologically and philosophically spiritually and what i see i see i see swami vivekananda and sri aurobindo as deeply akin and siblings in being spiritual cosmopolitans mm -hmm. i like the word cosmopolitanism because even cross cultural i used to use the word cross cultural and i'm moving away from it okay. embracing cosmopolitanism because it's it's so much more integral the word co cosmopolitan is that you don't even feel like like there are different compartments. I have I have an American side in me. I have an Indian side in me. I have a spiritual side. Of it. It's just all one and so integrally fused with one another that they're all just inextricable aspects of one integral personality. So and, and he, they were both cosmopolitan geniuses in that way. And I think that's yes. why they could they could understand the zeitgeist of the West 
in, in the late 19th century in the case of Vivekananda and early 20th century in the case of Sri Aurobindo, and at the same time have such a deep immersion in Indian spiritual traditions and be able to synthesize them in such a seamless way. That's my model, actually. Yeah, in my own work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. And it's sort of like you're one, but you don't lose your the, the multiplicity. You don't become homogeneous. As I said, it's cumulative, right? And so you, it's all about accretion and kind of enriching your identity by exposing yourself to other traditions and, and, you know, rather than kind of, you don't feel conflicts. It's just kind of like embracing everything and kind of enriching your identity and personality through that encounter with the other. Yeah. I, I have one last question. If we could close with this question, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and it came up in the, the Paris conference that you did. I'm not sure if you were there um, um, when this came up. It was... I presented a paper on Unshredderman's views on consciousness. Uh, oh, at that Cosmo. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Please, I think yeah. maybe you had maybe left at this time. But the, the idea came up um, and the idea was uh, like how Sri Aurobindo's idea is open to um, a rasa theodicy in the sense that... Oh, I was there. there. Stephen yeah, so I was wondering yeah. your thoughts on that yeah. because this sort of goes right back to your engagement with art and aesthetics and sort of feeling that there was a limitation in a certain approach to that. But I was wondering from this perspective and from this metaphysical position, how how this like the divine play could be thought of as, you know, in, in my own at one point I was, you know, all life is yoga is a very famous phrase of Shurabindo. And that transposition at a certain point, although the word is still insufficient, but all life is art, it started making sense to me, being like, it's not just about when I sit with my music, it's about the fact that all is musical all the time. And so I just wanted you to uh, maybe uh, respond a little bit and, and share some ideas on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish that Steve Phillips had kind of fleshed that, the idea of a Rasa out yeah, a little yeah. bit more, because I, it's not entirely clear to me what he means by that. But if what he means is something along the lines of this world is God at play, and that has theodical implications, then I think that that is an important part of Shredderman's theodicy. And I discussed that. I have a paper called A Great Adventure of the Soul, Shredderman's Theodicy of Spiritual Evolution, where I talk about that. But it's not a standalone theodicy. So I think that's really important is because it's a kind of slap in the face for somebody who's just lost her child or you know somebody who's going through terminal cancer to tell them, oh, but you know what you're going through now is just God's play. And so Shradabinda was very careful to distinguish standpoints. In The Life Divine, he says it clearly. He says, even though everything is God play, I mean, really from the ultimate standpoint, the whole problem is that we ignorant creatures who are suffering don't realize that. And so we should also have sympathy for and try to be empathetic and try to inhabit the standpoint of the poor suffering souls who, who don't have that highest realization. It's not rasa for them, for the person who just lost their two-year-old or the person who's dying of cancer, right? And so that's that's a part of his theodical genius, Rodovind, is that he, he always balanced and he always took into account these different standpoints. And so he balanced his Rasa theodicy with, he used it at a certain point in his logical dialectic, but he didn't stop there. And then he said, but we also have to take into account the standpoint of ignorance. And then from that standpoint, he would say things like, all the suffering that we encounter in this world is meant for soul making essentially that's not his word but it's the kind of word that's you that's current now in philosophy of religion so i'm using it it you the soul needs to learn from its experiences both of, of good and evil of pleasure and suffering and it, it grows in strength in moral and spiritual strength through that process over the course of many lives um ultimately you grow morally and spiritually strong ultimately you then attain realization of divine consciousness and then you're in a position to appreciate the rata right of this world 
something like that. So, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't see the Rasa theodicy as a kind of standalone one, but it is an important component in Sri Aurobindo's broader theodicy, which equally takes into account the standpoint of the suffering soul. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. That is very, very nuanced. And I appreciate that answer for sure. Um, well, we've been we've been uh, in conversation for an hour. Hard to believe time flies when you're uh, <laughs> deep in conversation um, with with like-minded souls or like uh, <laughs> familiar souls, I guess. Uh, Stefan, do you have anything that you want to close with? Or no, I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, it was a really wonderful conversation. I, I learned a lot. I'm I'm. There's so much that kind of got in deep that uh, uh, was difficult for me to even formulate questions. Um, and the you know uh, when uh, when Jonathan came uh, to me a few weeks ago and said that we would be speaking to you and kind of setting this up, and so I set about reading your book and uh, reading up on Ramakrishna. Um, I was I've just become really thankful for being introduced into an entire universe of thought and feeling. Um, so I wanted to thank you for that as well, because you're the occasion of, of that for me. So thank thank you. you so much. I, 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 it was a wonderful conversation with both you, Stefan and Jonathan, and I hope we'll do it again. Absolutely. Abadekahabe, Swamiji. Abadekahabe. All right. Take care. Jai Ma, Jai Ma.
Thank <laughs> you. 